Hello, and welcome to the Game Audio Hour, a fortnightly podcast where we discuss all things game audio. From creative ideas to the latest techniques, project experiences to audio secrets, here is where you'll find in-depth coverage and opinions related to game audio. This is episode 241. I am Vincent Diamante, currently broadcasting not so live, but only 20 minutes away from the NAM show, which is currently happening down in Anaheim. And I'm not there right now because it's really silly to do that. There's way too many people over there. But uh, there's another person that's also not at the NAM show. He's actually here on this call with me. <laughs> it's Alex. How are you Hi. doing? I'm I'm uh, pretty well, thanks, Vince. Yes, I I am indeed not at the Nam show. I've never been to the Nam show before. I guess uh, I'm really eager to hear about. Uh, have you actually been this year? Yeah, I have. It actually started yesterday. I, we're recording on Friday, and the show actually starts uh, in the middle of the week. There's typically an early pre-show sneak peek sort of event happening on Wednesday, and the first day was actually yesterday, Thursday. I mean, it must be pretty exciting, really. I mean, not only is music tech fun, uh, but also, yeah, you know, I mean, if you if you walk around, you probably, I guess, catch a glimpse of some pretty famous people walking around too, right? Yeah, there's some cool stuff that's happening over there. Um, you run into people that are like, oh, yeah, I, I know that guy. Or, um, oh, yeah, that's a, actually a pretty famous DJ, and he's going to go over to the shore booth for something and, you know, stuff like mm. that. Um, there are also some times when there's a huge crowd uh, gathered at a booth and you have no clue who it is. You just know that it's a huge crowd and you're not going to try to actually make your way to the front there. <laughs> right. So um, I guess, yeah, to kick off t uh, today's discussion, I suppose the obvious elephant in the room question is... Uh, uh, when you went there, did you did you see anything that could be cool or interesting for uh, for us uh, game audio people? I guess I don't know what microphones or plugins or uh, controllers or anything like that. Uh, a little bit. I got to admit though that I've gotten a little bit jaded when it comes to the Nam Show. Uh, you know, I tell people, "Hey, it's the Nam Show, and the MM in Nam stands for Music Merchants." So it's really all about sell, 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 and buy, buy, buy. And, uh, you know, sometimes you don't really need that. I get that mm. it's definitely fun and exciting and there's new tech on the horizon. Um, not that much there, at least not in my face when it comes to the big AI trend that's happening right now, uh, but certainly a lot of fun stuff out there there's a big synth section if you want to check out modular stuff if you want to check out interesting um interesting input paradigms for those synths i gotta admit i definitely put my hands on some new electric wind instruments that were on there that was kind of cool oh cool um yeah and uh you know checking out some pro audio stuff um uh, What's Rupert Neve up to, uh, or rather his company, Rupert Neve Designs, what are they up to? What's SSL up to and and mm. all that stuff? Uh, that's kind of cool, but it's definitely over the years I've been getting jaded about it. But uh, it's easy to forget that there are other things there besides the show floor. And if you go up a floor to the second floor of that 
uh, of the main hall of the Anaheim Convention Center, you will find actually these rooms where there are other exhibitors showing their stuff in more private sort of spaces, as well mm. as places that are set up explicitly as lecture rooms. And people talking about stuff, whether it be the industry or tech or just general prognostication, it can be kind of cool. And uh, I wasn't originally thinking about going to one of these things yesterday, but uh, someone that I knew that I was going to meet up with, he said, oh, I'm going to check out this microphone talk. And I looked it up and it was a sponsored talk by Buyer Dynamic, but it was also Mm. Steve Albini who is a pretty cool uh, recording engineer producer who's been in the industry for decades. I thought it would be interesting to actually check that out. And actually, it was a pretty good talk. It was a pretty good talk that made me think a little bit about how exactly I am using my microphones. You know, just talking about stuff that I, I had known for years when it comes to the basics of microphone technique but also going through his particular lens and perspective of how he actually utilizes that knowledge that he's gathered. You know, what can I, what can I glean from the spec sheet of this microphone and how do I use it to my advantage in these specific recording situations? And it was actually a pretty darn good talk. That's cool. I I had no idea that the name show had that kind of sort of educational side to it as well. Yeah, it it can be all over the place. Sometimes it's technical talks. Uh, sometimes uh, they do things that are uh, a joint thing where it's uh, NAM sponsored or maybe co-sponsored with the AES, the Audio Engineering Society. Uh, sometimes it's more high level and it's talking to you know people about emerging fields. Uh, actually, last year. I, let's see. Yeah, last year, I I knew some people, for example, a friend of the show, Chase Bethia, he actually did a talk at NAMM last year talking about some of the games that he's worked on in a a group with other people doing postmortems on their various interactive audio projects. So there's some fun stuff happening at NAMM besides just the show floor and buy, 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 sell, 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 all that. Cool. On the show floor, how do they manage volume? Because I imagine that for things like uh, synths, you know, you can get away with with a set of headphones for, to demo on that you can actually hear what you're doing. But if you were if you were going to an amp show and you wanted to exhibit like a I don't know like a, a guitar amp or a bass amp or something like that, and you don't like like how do <laughs> is it like a is it like some kind of aircraft traffic control that <laughs> that. Uh, <laughs> kind of directs directs people so okay now you know uh marshall you, now it's your turn for the next 10 minutes and okay vox now now you go and <laughs> mr boogie now you go or is it just like the loudest wins oh man they've actually been combating that for years um i remember seeing a few years back uh they had limits on just how loud any of these individual booths can be. And if it went above a threshold, they would ostensibly have the means to shut the booth down. Wow. So uh, there was, uh, so yeah, you have to get loud up to a certain point and you can't go beyond that. Uh, some of these companies actually do get more space in other places. So they might have a show booth 
on the show floor, but they also might have a separate room on another floor of the convention center where people can go and actually try out stuff and they're the only player there as opposed to sharing space with a couple dozen other people. That sounds much nicer. I've never actually, I've never actually been to any, um, you know, music, uh, music equipment trade show ever. In like, I'd I'd never been to one when I was in Japan and uh, here in Europe. Uh, there are a number, in, especially in Germany, but I've never been to mm. any of those. So the the synth scene is is very big, obviously in in Germany, and I've never been to any of the. Let's see, I think there's like Super Booth is one of the big ones, and this. Something messy. Uh, I don't remember, but uh, yeah, I, I should uh, make an effort to uh, go out and visit one of these shows one day. Although I probably would end up, uh, yeah, regretting it from a financial point of view. <laughs> uh, I'm guessing. I'm guessing that at these you booths, you can just walk in and say, "Yeah, I want to buy one of these." Can you actually buy from the show floor? Um, very few booths actually do that i've done that for a couple of things over the years but i would say 90 percent of the booths there don't actually sell to you the consumer at the show um okay the original intent was to hook up these developers and inventors and you know music creators with dealers right you know Mm. you know being connected with a dealership network or a distributor in America or some other country or whatnot. Um, and then the dealers would be the ones that would be the, the ones to actually sell it to you, the consumer. But over the last few years, you have a lot of people, especially software guys or people that mm-hmm. are doing, you know, smaller items. Uh, so maybe not your big guitar stacks, but, you know, little knickknacks that are actually really important to you like um the last thing that i bought directly from a booth at nam was actually a saxophone strap uh it, okay. was, this, it was this company <laughs> called breathtaking and i and uh i they gave me the opportunity to try it on and and wear um like a soprano sax and i thought oh wow this is comfy can I buy oh, it okay. here? And they actually had a little sign there that said, yeah, we, we can actually sell to you right now. And we do sell directly to the to the customer as well as selling through various networks. Uh, th- that's always the issue, right? If you're selling directly to the customer, what's the point of a guitar center or right. uh, or a Sam Ash or you know any of these other dealers? But right. um, yeah, they're starting to learn how to coexist with one another. Oh, cool. So actually, originally the NAMM show was B2B, and then now it's kind of shifted to be B2C. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Before, it was actually a little bit annoying to register and attend as a person. Okay. And even if you could, it might be something really quite expensive. It's still a little right. expensive, actually, as an end user. Uh, I think it's something like 140 or $150 to attend. Mm. Which is, that's pretty expensive. Um, There are some discounts. Like if you're a student, I think they'll half that to 70 bucks. I'm I'm not sure I would recommend people just go there um, and and throw money at them in order to get a ticket. Uh, For a long time, the best way to get a ticket was actually to have a friend that was working in the in the business, whether it be for a place like Guitar Center. uh, And Guitar Center would 
pass out these things to their employees so that they would be familiar with the equipment and have have some excitement for what they would ostensibly be stocking on their store shelves or know someone at uh, Roland, actually, one of my teachers, when I was studying at USC, he actually worked for Roland in their uh, digital keyboard division. So I was able oh. to get tickets through him back when I attended NAM in the early 2000s, quite a while ago. Wow. That must have been cool. I guess early 2000s, Roland. Uh, let's see, JV2080? No, I, no, we, we were actually at XV by that point. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> XV, what was it? XV 5080. It wasn't yeah. the XV. XV 5080. Yeah, right. yeah, I'm just uh, looking over at my uh, my beloved JV 1080 sitting sitting beside me here. Yeah, you know, actually, um, I had a moment the other day when I was I, I suddenly realized, man, if if the, you know, myself from about 30 years ago um, could see me now sitting next to like a JV 1080 and, uh, you know, a, uh, um, uh, I, I never actually aspired to any of these other ones that I have, like the D110 or the MKS50 or the TX81Z. Mm. Um, but the, the 1080, when I was growing up, you know, I used to have, um, I don't know if you remember, Future Music Magazine. Uh, mm-hmm. Actually, maybe, I guess, in the States, you probably, it was more, what, sound on sound, I suppose? Or uh, uh, what were the big magazines? Well, let's for, see, back in music? the day... I mean, Sound and Sound is, they're British, right? And then uh, the the one I remember is like uh, Keyboard Magazine, Electronic Uh, Musician. Right, right. Yeah, Yeah, but I I remember Future Music, though. That that was definitely on shelves over here, too. Yeah, I actually had um, Issue 2. from. I started from Issue 2. And and, uh, uh, Yeah. And, yeah, the... um, uh, the the JV1080 was like the the Rolls Royce in those days. Like that was the that was the pinnacle. You know that was the the pro level, the top shelf, world class. You know the the Rolls Royce of uh, of um, uh, rack synthesizers. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, sometimes I I kind of have a little smile to myself at what a privilege it is to actually come to this come this far and actually have one now. Even though of course. The tape, the JV1080 is, of course, hardly as relevant now as it used to be. But uh, anyway, um, <laughs> sp- yeah. Speaking of the '90s and game audio, um, I had an interesting uh, assignment that I gave myself a few weeks ago that I thought might be cool to chat about. Mm. So at the moment, um, I'm working on the music and sound for a uh, game by a small British studio. It's a VR game, and I'll be um, hopefully being able to give more details about it uh, soon, but it's a VR game and it, it is very much an homage to Virtuacop and Time Crisis. Oh. And so I, uh, doing my <clears throat> due diligence, <laughs> I love that word, I love those words, due diligence, it's ridiculous. Anyway, doing my due diligence, I uh, decided to go on a little bit of a deep dive to investigate the how the music is implemented in uh, these games. So we have um, uh, Time Crisis. I I checked out Time Crisis 1 and 2 as the sort of chief representatives of of Time Crisis. And then I also checked out Virtua Cop 1 and 2 as well. Um, Time Crisis Crisis 1 and 2 sort of is very similar to Virtua Cop, uh, sorry, Virtua Fighter 1 and 2. You Mm -hmm. know, Time Crisis 1 is, is a bit, 
kind of kind of clunky and a bit sort of eccentric <laughs> maybe uh you know it doesn't uh, let's just say it hasn't really aged too well <laughs> uh just like just like Virtua Fighter One, you know, I mean, it's quite seminal in in and it has a very significant uh, position in the history of these genres. But uh, yeah, you look at it now and it hasn't really aged that well. Meanwhile, Time Crisis Two and Virtua Fighter Two have aged very well. Like they they mm. look very good. I mean, um, even by today's standards, obviously they're not, you know, they're not um, nowhere near the. The, the quality of animation and, and visual fidelity of what we have nowadays. But in terms of just like looking at it and think, oh, cool, it's a it's a retro video game. <laughs> Time <laughs> Crisis 2 and Virtua, Virtua Fighter 2 have aged very, very well. Um, anyway, so mm. coming to the audio, so looking at the music implementation for these games and um, uh, Time, Crisis, Time Crisis 2 and beyond and Virtua Cop 1 and 2, so these three titles, um, they all have a, a fairly sort of uh, fairly basic um, implementation of their music system. So basically you have uh, a, a loop of music, mm -hmm. quite short, uh, and then basically um, for each uh, area in the game that you go through, you have one unique loop of music that plays. So as you progress through the areas in each of these three games, it goes to the next loop and it goes to the next loop. And so for, yeah, every area has its unique track of music. And this is what you would probably call a, you know, a fairly traditional standard um, uh, and, and obvious uh, kind of music implementation. Mm -hmm. The interesting one is, is Time Crisis 1. Huh. And the reason that, it, the reason that it's interesting is that I... I played a lot of Time Crisis 1 in the arcade and I have very fond nostalgic memories of playing it. And a lot of the um, the music cues uh, I discovered actually are um, uh, directly, directly inspired by the Speed soundtrack, you know, Speed with um, Keanu Reeves Keanu and Reeves, Sandra Bullock. Bullock. <laughs> and, yes. Uh, yeah, they actually, I, I found that actually the movie Speed was actually, uh, it came out in cinemas one year before Time Crisis 1 came out in the arcades. So there are actually certain tracks on the Speed soundtrack that are almost identical to the Time Crisis, Time Crisis 1 uh, music. Uh, same kinds of, um, uh, yeah, almost identical. I mean, they're obviously wow. they're completely different music, but it's, it's really clear that um uh the the director of time crisis just said to their their um composer just make it like the speed soundtrack so the composer did and there it is anyway what's really really interesting and surprising about time crisis one is despite having very fond memories of some of those iconic signature music cues that they have in the game there's actually only about four music loops that are all fairly short that um that just uh it they they play the the four loops play in a loop through the whole game okay and it <laughs> it's really surprising because i'd never noticed that before like there's actually i mean if you just imagine four pieces of music that are about i don't know 60 seconds long each that loop and they just play in sequence, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, through the game. And 
that's all all it is. And then you have um, uh, little incidental sort of cutscene music and um, the boss fights have unique tracks, but all of the regular gameplay music is just one of these four loops that's just kind of going in the background. And wow. The, yeah, the reason that this is surprising is I never noticed. <laughs> I I never noticed that they were actually the same four pieces of music just playing over and over again. And I don't know whether it's because, you know, being an arcade, you know, you 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 really you don't hear much of the music anyway because it's so noisy around you. Um but yeah, don't you think that's surprising that it, it's they could get away with something so simple? And so, I mean, I guess so economic like that, but no one really noticed. Do, do you think it possibly could be because it's just, because it's an arcade game and therefore, you know, with all the ambient, the noise around you in the arcade center, you would, no one would really notice? Or do you think that actually maybe as far as music implementation goes, us game audio people, are we, <laughs> are we sort of becoming a little bit too extra extravagant when we could get get away with a lot less. Well, what's your thoughts? Wow, I, I I guess that makes sense. You know, in the arcade, it's always big, it's always loud. Um, even when there aren't necessarily a lot of people there actively playing games, you still got the attract modes just running on the nearby machines, so they're making noise still. Um, mm. So I guess I'm not surprised that in addition to the first thought in my mind, which was back in the mid 90s when these games came out, you were still shipping arcade games on purely ROM chips uh, for the well, right. not purely, but for the most part, it was ROM and that stuff is expensive and you definitely want to be economical with how much space you're actually using for any of these arcade games because... Yeah, memory is expensive. It wasn't until a few years later that it became much more commonplace to have arcade games actually ship on a disc that would be loaded mm. into the the arcade motherboard RAM before it actually starts to play. Um, mm. So, you know, memory is important. And if memory is important, what gets the, the short end of the stick? Uh, music will often do that. So, hey, let's just have... A loop or two loops or three loops or four loops, I guess. Um, is that enough? And it was definitely enough for me because back in the day when I played Time Crisis 1 and 2, I didn't mind. It was, it was, <laughs> it was raucous and action-y enough for me to be excited while that thing said action and I got to shoot all That's the guys right. and then move on to the next part <laughs> of the game. All right, let's go. Yeah. I, I wonder because this is this is something that um, all of us doing game audio, we've all had to do this before where we're working on a project, the project just started and you know the 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 producer or the, the game director or, or just your colleagues are discussing with you about the music budget, you know, like how much music does our game really need? Mm -hmm. And I feel like this is a very important part of if you're a freelance composer, it's a really, really important part of the, you know, the estimation process uh, in giving a quote, you know, when, how much is it going to cost me? Well, let's talk about your game and let's figure out a music spec so we can define how much music your game can get, you know, how much it, it ideally should have. Uh, but obviously in most cases, it's a case of trying to keep the budget as low as possible. 
So it becomes a question of how much music can we get away with? Like how, how little music can we get, get away with? Mm-hmm. So if there are cases where a, a client has approached a composer saying like, okay, this is our budget. We've only got this much to work with. Ideally, the game needs, you know, maybe like 30 or 40 minutes worth of music, but maybe they can only afford 10. Mm-hmm. So in this kind of situation, you know, Time Crisis, I guess, had the advantage because being an arcade game, being designed to be played in an extremely noisy environment, and on top of that, being a game where ba- basically, you know, for the most part, all you're going to be hearing is gunshots. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and... um I don't know if you remember that trick. We used to do it in in Australia, where you you spam the the trigger of the plastic light gun. So mm-hmm. you you stick your if you're holding the gun with your left hand, you stick your right hand into it with the with the pointer finger. You stick your pointer finger into the the uh, the trigger. What do you call it? The trigger well, I guess you know the little yeah. And and you shake your finger backwards and forwards. To, I to, did that all the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so if you if you're playing like that, you're not going to hear anything because all you hear is like gunshots and like action and reload is all you really hear. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, in that case, they can get away with with such a small um, music quota because, and maybe that was a hardware limitation as well. But mm-hmm. what what kind of tricks have you um, seen done before, or have you employed yourself, or that you can think of just off the top of your head? to help composers get away with as little music as possible where there are situations where a client has a a really, really tight budget. Man, tricks? It, man, when you say tricks like that, I, it almost makes me think, ooh, am I am I pulling the wool over someone's eyes? But, <laughs> but um, man, yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of it... I feel like everyone has their own tricks based on their own compositional style, right? Uh, I think that's right. really important. Like, you know, a trick that works for one person might not work for another person. Uh, so one of the things that I would probably lean on is actually tonal center. So mm. I'm, I like moving tonal centers really suddenly and really rapidly. And that's, it's a very powerful technique that you can use uh, in order to heighten emotion, you know, create suspense. You can use it in all sorts of different ways. But also, um, that shifting of the tonal center, whether it be a direct modulation where you're just like, oh, I'm in one key and then bam, I'm in another key. Or mm. through like a more extended modulation where you're going through a couple of chords and trying to smooth out that transition. Um, all of that subverts your idea of the structure of the piece and whether mm. that structure is actually going to be grokked by the listener over the course of listening. So mm. if you're changing key centers all the time, let's say every eight bars, then you you're sort of priming for these shifts to happen quite regularly. And Mm. if you do it in the right way, those shifts can happen in conjunction with a loop point and the change in feeling that comes with, Oh, I'm, I'm changing my tonal center. I'm changing my chord here. If that arrives at the same time as a loop point and it feels like a change more than it feels like a return to existing material, 
then that's a win. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's a good um uh that's a good approach, I think. I think um uh it's uh, it is a kind of a hack in a way, isn't it? It's just kind of a uh a, a sort of a a trick and I think that it's mm-hmm. it makes sense that the the change of music in many cases is going to be more noticeable than the the repetition of music, you know, that if something is suddenly changed, you'll notice it at that point. Whereas a loop that's that's looping, and especially if you're concentrating on gameplay, and I suppose obviously that the genre of the game is critical as well. If it mm. is a say, for example, like a like a city builder game, then in that case, because it's more chill and there'll be moments when you're actually just watching or just looking at things or thinking rather than actually interacting or doing any kind of um you know reflex based interactions with the game mm-hmm. um then in those sort of situations the music is laid bare much more uh much more um in a much more challenging way so your changes become much more obvious and the repetition becomes much more obvious right um i think another another um interesting thing to work with is no music <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah seems like it seems like an obvious answer of course but like um instead of having again it depends on the genre like if you're making like a like a bullet hell game then mm-hmm. no music is is kind of a no no <laughs> you want to have sort of music all the time and sort of frantic energy all the time and when there's no music it really doesn't quite fit in but there are many many genres of games that actually really benefit from having no music such that when the music does enter it's even that much more powerful um so mm-hmm, yeah. intent in, intentionally uh reserving uh music space for very very specific purposes that maybe maybe the entire bed of the game sound is ambience and you reserve you know for example if you have 10 minutes of music budget for like a 2 hour game um keeping it all basically focused on ambient sound and then using that music budget that 10 minute budget for just putting just using that for stingers mm-hmm. uh, that could also be another approach i guess to to deal with a small um uh music budget you mentioned time crisis and i my memory is that there were cinematics that had their own bespoke music accompaniment um in contrast to the music loops that happen while you're actually in the the shooting action portion of the game, right? Yeah, that's correct. So um, as I said, that there is unique boss fight music and the the cutscenes that come before the boss uh, fights, those also have little unique um, sort of stinger style snippets that play as well. Mm -hmm. So again, I think that that's, that's very clever because during the main gameplay, you're obviously, you know, you're quite heightened and you're you're frantically shooting at stuff and playing and you know pumping on that uh pedal on the floor um but when it comes to the cutscenes, that's when your attention is entirely on the you know the 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 cinematic and those are the times when you're more likely to notice the music than when you're actually playing which is why they i guess they took their in their case it would probably wouldn't have been a financial budget it would have been memory budget or like storage budget uh, for their music, and um, they put it into those cutscenes instead of in, into the actual gameplay. Um, this is very clever. I it was the sort of a interesting 
aha moment when I realized, oh, they're actually just looping the same four four tracks of music through the whole game. I'd, I'd never noticed that before. Yeah. <laughs> well, when, when they break out of that, I'm trying to remember exactly, but I feel like when they break out of that loop of action music, it's really quite sudden. You know, it's often accompanied by a little screen that has, um, you know, your score and, and how long it took for you. Uh, to actually mm. play through that, it's like this boom, and 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 it's actually rather quiet there for a few seconds before it goes yeah. into the cinematic, which feels exactly really strong. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So, Time Crisis is is um, less so in Time Crisis One, but very very much so in Time Crisis Two mm. uh, and beyond, Three and Four. Um, in Time Crisis Two, they really have got that pacing just down perfectly. In a very typical sort of Japanese arcade game style, you know, when you've got when you've got the um, when you complete an area, they call them in in uh, Time Crisis, I believe, uh, then you get this like you know stage complete, and you get this da and you get the numbers like counting up there to show you your accuracy and your score <laughs> and stuff like that, um, and then after that, there's always a, a lull where there's no sound at all, and it it's perfect you know it's a perfect example of you know all intensity and then this kind of lull of silence for a little while and then back to all intensity again and um mm, yeah. uh, especially in the arcade context that's so effective you know when when you just have this ah oh, kind of you know this this respite this moment of of um sort of serenity <laughs> for a yeah. little a little moment there before you head back into the the intense noise and action yeah, shake the hands out like, oh, you're just slamming that trigger too many times. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. I think it's, um, I mean, it's no, it's no secret that um, very, very careful use of silence in a music specification uh, just can be extremely, extremely effective um, and, you know, far more effective than things that you can do with the music itself in, in many cases. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think that that's probably the the best kind of um, the time crisis two. After it counts up, it tallies up your score for the level, and it's silent in that moment. That of recent memory, that's like one of the greatest uses of of silence that I can recall in a in a game audio specification. Do you, do you have any others that you can recall offhand that uh, you know where there's this where you realize oh actually there's nothing sounding at all right now. It's totally quiet. Where that's just such an effective pacing tool. Are there any that come to mind? Um, there's a couple places. Oh, okay, the first thing that comes to mind for me is actually Radiant Silver Gun, which is a vertical mm. shmup. Uh, it's right. Is that by, is that treasure? It is treasure. It's not a bullet hell type shooter. It's sort of a little bit more of a puzzly type of cerebral shooter, but it's still extremely intense. And in right. many places in the game. Uh, you know, just before these significant bosses or, um, you know, just after um, you've completed a particular boss segment of the game, then the music will fade out and there will be absolutely nothing for a few seconds before the music either immediately starts up or there might be sort of a, a slow fade in of music and sound effects and, and vocals and whatnot. Uh, I'm actually thinking about this 
particularly powerful moment at the end uh, where you, you finish stuff off, but then there is this segment where you actually are not able to fire any of your weapons anymore and you just have to survive. But it starts mm. out totally quiet and then it fades in with this really emotional music, which is quite surprising and quite different from the music that you heard previously in the game. Mm. That's really cool. It's um, uh, it's a very common feature of uh, certain kinds of um, like hard industrial techno and minimal techno, where mm. they really play really uh, cleverly with with sound contrast like that, where you have like this driving rhythm and intense sound, and then um, I mean it's it's also a trick that DJs do a lot too, right? Where they'll oh, yeah. they'll cut they'll cut the top end and the bottom end out of a track um uh to to give this sort of strong sense of contrast so that when it comes back in again and the kick uh and the top end comes back in again it just it 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 comes in with this huge impact because you've you've your ears have gotten used to something else for a little moment so it sounds a little bit like that and especially shoot 'em ups and bullet hell games you know because they're so intense visually and um often the soundtracks especially in the japanese ones are you know that <laughs> that classic um high tempo uh, I, yeah. I, mean, I guess I, I guess it's power metal i suppose i don't yeah, know yeah really, very intense very yeah very guitar heavy very exciting yeah yeah that's um uh the the contrast between noise and silence or you know high frequencies and low frequencies or um you know intense intense tempo versus no rhythm and things like that it's it's a really interesting tool that we have in game audio to play with, which we can, you know, uh, we can um, uh, work together with the pacing of a of gameplay yeah. in order to, to to sort of really enhance that that flow. It's really cool that you know these techniques work so well in an arcade environment where you don't really have a lot of dynamic range in the arcade because if you try to do nuanced dynamic stuff, it just gets lost in the in the din of that whole arcade space. But when you have like these really big strong contrasts, oh, it works really well and it's very powerful. Mm, yeah, indeed. I've only had um, I think. Well, we did more uh, arcade games when I was in Japan um, than I am doing now here in Sweden. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, yeah, <laughs> as I remember, it's, it's somewhat frustrating, I suppose, or somewhat, um, uh, no, not frustrating, I guess it's eye-opening when you put all that effort into your first arcade game release. And then when you actually go and play it in the arcade, it's mm -hmm. like, okay, I can't hear anything. <laughs> all all of that effort that I put in into making like you know these perfect perfect things and I'm basically hearing you know 15% of what I made now. <laughs> so, right. So I guess I try less hard next time. Well, but you don't have to worry about that now since um, you're working on a VR game, right? And that's a very um, you know, it's a personal, it's an intimate experience. It's them and they have the headset and they're often in an ideal space because they have their well, hopefully they have some good headphones and they can listen in full fidelity, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, you never really know what kind of listening, uh, whether people will be using the built-in headphones on devices like the MetaQuest or the, um, or whether they're going to be plugging their headphones in. Um, I, I feel like uh, I don't actually have uh, statistics for it, but I feel like um, 
the whole appeal of a device like the Meta Quest is that it's obviously it's untethered. You don't need a, a PC or anything to play with it. You just strap it on and off you go. And mm-hmm. so the the convenience of the built-in speakers um, uh, is just really, really appealing for a lot of people, I imagine. I mean, only because it's very appealing for me. <laughs> you know, yeah. when you got this when you got this thing on your head, the last thing that you want to do is put another thing on your head. Um, so having having built-in speakers is is uh, really nice. Uh, so you know you never can never really be sure whether someone's going to be listening through the speakers that are built in or going to be having um, going to be listening through headphones. But then of course that's the same challenge that we have for you know all all of our work. We don't really know what people are going to be listening to it on. Yeah, it's true. I really want to get a a new type of headset to go with my playstation vr2 because the playstation vr2 is great in many ways it's so much better than the quest 2 but because the playstation vr2 is tethered to the to the playstation 5 it's got that cable there and just Mm. having to deal with two cables now because i have a wired set of headphones that's connected to my playstation vr it's really annoying having another cable draped over my shoulder that I have to worry about. And I I wish I actually had those built in um those built in side slits of audio the the way that the quest does. Mm. Yeah, for sure. I mean that they're not um they're not fantastic speakers, but I mean I guess hey, you know, when uh, if you if you think of mobile gaming sound uh, mm. uh, you know, I guess that they're not that bad in terms of what the the people doing sound for mobile games have to deal with. Um, but the the convenience, obviously, for the consumer is is very obvious. So definitely an important consideration when you're mixing. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Yeah, when when you were doing um, uh, your work with that game company on Sky, that's a mobile game. That yeah. must have been a pre- a pretty daunting task to try and mix that, knowing that you know especially when it comes to Android, your game could potentially be played on thousands of different types of, of speakers, if at all, you know, with the, with sound at all. I mean, uh, mobile games, of course, people doing music and sound for mobile games have to deal with the, the, the chance and the risk that players have it muted and then they're not even listening to your sound. But um, that must have been just an incredibly intimidating uh, task to approach. Like, how do you mix for that? Yeah, it it was definitely really annoying and we maybe we put a little too much effort into it quite honestly. Um it, it's that whole um diminishing returns thing because at the time back before the game was officially launched in 2019, uh we spent a lot of time trying to figure out what these different headsets actually sounded like. And it mm. turned out that the most popular headsets, even among different phones in the Apple iPhone lineup, it would sound different coming out of the handset's built-in speaker. And that was right, so yeah. frustrating. The iPhone mm. 7, I remember, being really, really annoying because it had this very pronounced high-mid uh, frequency response that just wasn't mm. the same as you would hear on the iPhone 6 or the mm. iPhone 8 or the or the X that just came out it, w- it was really yeah. really weird um, I can I can actually I can actually testify to that because um uh yeah my my son 
had an iPhone 6 and then my wife had an iPhone 7. <laughs> so, oh, and okay. so, um, yeah, obviously these were like handed down. So, um, uh, he didn't have a, uh, iPhone 6 at the time that there was the iPhone 6, but it was a hand down. And, um, like a few years later, it was a hand down. And, uh, yeah, it was like, wow, even, like the iPhone 6 is this, uh, you know, fairly outdated, archaic iPhone at this point. But the, the, the built in speaker on that, you would think that the iPhone 7 would be much better. But somehow when he plays music through his iPhone 6, it sounds much better than through through my wife's iPhone 7. So, so uh, I, you can, I definitely know yes. what you mean by that pronounced um, mid-range bump. Yeah, and I think I get what was going on. They must have done something in hardware, in software, maybe both, in order to increase voice intelligibility. Uh, and, but it also changed the overall sound signature. And they right. went away from that going to the iPhone 8, which was really funny. Um, mm. So we actually had all these different profiles that would actually engage EQ on the master bus of the game, depending on what phone you were playing it on. So wow. first, um, one, are you uh, do you have headphones plugged in or are you uh, streaming out to some external speaker of some sort? You know, if you were, great, that's awesome. But if you were playing it just on the device and it was one of these iPhones, then it would engage these different EQ curves. And, you know, I think it helped. But, uh, you know, we only dealt with iPhones, not everything mm. else that's out in the world. Because, you know, once you get into Android territory, oh my God, there's so many yeah. things out there. <laughs> At least with iPhone, yeah. you can say that, yeah, there's potentially tens or hundreds of thousands of people using this exact same device. So let's right. let's do something for that. And and it worked out pretty well, but mm. now the game has been out for a few years. Uh we're not actually doing that anymore just because okay. I mean there's so many iPhones out there now. Uh, yeah. we're not on iPhone 8 anymore. We're on iPhone 14. Jeez. Right, right. Do you um have any um I, I guess you probably don't have statistics that you can recall accurately to mind on the spot but i'm just wondering like in general are people uh are mobile game players listening more to their games now than previously things like the you know apple's mm. airpods airpods are very ubiquitous and they're very convenient they sound pretty good and that you know they're very um popular uh, does this mean that mobile game players uh, are listening to their games more often now than before when you had to have this thing plugged in with a cable hanging off you and, you know, you got to put it in, you got to take it out? It's quite inconvenient. Um, I wonder if if this is actually the AirPod, AirPods have actually increased the percentage of players who are actually listening to their games on on the, in the mobile game space. Mm, that would be nice to check out. It's actually... Um, it has been a while since I looked at those metrics, uh, quite honestly. Mm. Um, I remember the last time I really looked at it was a few years back. And at the time, I just remember being rather disheartened because right. uh, you know, more than 90% are playing without any sort of external device, whether it be Bluetooth or a wired device uh, that it's hooked right. up to. Um, 
Yeah, so single digits there. And then that also, uh, I think that also ignores that separate metric of how many people are actually playing the game on mute, which right, was exactly. yeah, way too high. Um, it wasn't 50%. I want to say it was 20, All right. you know, which was kind of sad to think about. <laughs> Right, right. Uh, but but that, that was yeah. like a few years back, and maybe things have changed. Uh, because yeah, the landscape has changed a bit over the last few years. Uh, AirPods, I mean, a few years back, those Apple AirPods were um, almost aspirational sort of status symbol type of devices, and now they're right rather ubiquitous. Right. Yeah. I think also the, like, I'm just remembering, um, I don't play mobile games these days. I did used to play quite a lot of mobile games when I was in Japan. And obviously when you're on your commute on a Japanese commuter train, mm -hmm. you, uh, you, I mean, there's so packed full of people. You don't want to have the, your phone with the sound on, but then in those days, uh, unless you've got noise canceling headphones, which, you know, few people did, um, yeah, it just doesn't make sense to have headphones in either because you just can't. Sorry, not headphones. Like earphones is the is the correct term. Mm. Like any kind of earphones or earbuds, it doesn't make sense to have those in because you just can't hear anything anyway on a noisy commuter train. Um, uh, so yeah, you would end up playing your uh, mobile games with the sound totally off. Uh, it's just easier that way. You know, you don't have to deal with. Um, extra equipment to put into your ears and you don't have to deal with other people it's just no sound uh it's like it's it's sad isn't it I, in it's, a way yeah, it's a little depressing bit, yeah <laughs> yeah it's a little bit similar to the arcade game uh situation where you know you could put all that effort into the nuance and the subtleties of your arcade score and then nobody's really going to hear it because it's so noisy mm -hmm. yeah i yeah. Oh, well, uh, things have changed, though. I mean, there's a lot more people with those earphones. Um, the general quality of earphones has gotten a lot better. I'm just looking at the dates and realizing, wow, those first AirPods actually made their debut in 2016. Um, mm. And I remember, you know, Bluetooth headphones and, and earphones and earbuds, they've been around for many, many years. They just really really sucked for a very long time whether it be because of latency which is still very bad in the android world or because of general quality you're just not mm. hearing anything resembling a full frequency response um right and, and things have gotten so much better where you can get um reasonably good bluetooth earbuds for 50 60 bucks uh like hey the here's a pretty good pair of these JBL things. And, oh, all right, yeah, maybe they're just, you know, maybe it's just the big international Harman conglomerate slapping the JBL name on a relatively cheap design. But, man, that relatively cheap design is so much better than what we used to have back in the 2010s for that mm. type of tech. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, I actually don't have any uh, ear earbuds or ear i think when i'm outside i like to um I, I tend not to listen to music when i'm outside at all mm. uh I, I like to um you know be trying to be observant and listening to the the real world and you know it's always fun um just sort of li listening to sound and listening to the way that sound propagates around and uh you know trying to imagine 
yourself like, okay, if I had to construct this ambience that I'm hearing right now, how would I do it? And what elements do I need? And, you know, listening to the way the sound reverberates, it's, I find it's a very um, healthy and educational thing just to be very present and very aware of the sound around you all the time. And it certainly helps in the process of actually trying to design sound for a video game to have a, a good breadth of experience to draw from for, for, for just world, real world sound. And obviously, you know, um, uh, I, I want to take care of my hearing and to, in order to hear music at a decent volume, if you're not, uh, using, uh, noise canceling, um, earphones or headphones, uh, then that's obviously not so good for your hearing. So yeah, I, I actually don't own any, uh, headphones or earphones for outside external use. Hmm. Um, uh, but anyway, that's, that's really cool. I, I'm, I, I'm actually thinking about that and how, you know, I try to go out running quite a bit. I am very often using my, my Bluetooth headset. I actually have a specific running headset that uses bone conducting in order oh, yeah. to transmit the audio directly through the bones next to my ear rather than covering my ear. Because, you know, if I'm out running, I want to be able to hear if, oh, there's a car coming around behind me or there are people uh, shouting at me uh, from out of my eyesight and I, I need to be aware of that. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So let's roll on to some conspicuous consumption, shall we? This is the famous part of the show where we uh, just go around the room or go across the table in this case, uh, or across across the pond, as they say, um, <laughs> uh, across the pond in a country, I guess, from from here to California. But uh, um, yeah, we'll, we'll just uh, check in on each other to see what kinds of interesting media, games or music or literature or cinema or things like that we've been conspicuously consuming in the past, uh, since the, the last show that we did. Uh, so why don't you kick it off, Vince? What have you been getting into? Well, let's see. I haven't been playing too much of my VR games. I have been watching my wife play a few games lately. Um, she has recently been getting back into Overwatch 2. And mm. even though Overwatch 2 is a relatively new game, it's a pretty it's been a pretty steady move from Overwatch 1 back when it came out in the mid-2010s to where they are now uh, with this game as a, as a live service hero shooter. And I remember when Overwatch came out, it was really quite good in the audio department, especially in terms of technical and 3D. Uh, being mm. a competitive hero shooter, they really tried their best to make it so that the 3D environment was as appropriate and connected as possible so that it motivates people to make smart tactical decisions based on real, real information about the battlefield as conveyed by the audio. And mm. Overwatch 2 continues that. Um, it's... Now got a somewhat more modern tech platform, uh, and there's more stuff going on in these environments and with these characters and um, all the stuff happening when it comes to sound effects for the important parts of what's going on in the game. You know, attack shoutouts and cooldowns and all the UI stuff that's happening and balancing that out with, with all the voice as well. 
um, in order to make it a, a good competitive game. So it's been pretty fun to actually check that game out, at least through um, my wife's eyes and ears as she's getting back into that. She was actually the first to get into that game. And then she dragged me along for the ride back in 2017. It was it was pretty fun actually playing that game together, and uh, maybe we'll get back into it uh, now because they just introduced some new heroes. There's some interesting stuff happening in that world, so yeah, maybe I'll jump into that again. Fantastic! Yeah, it's actually um, these days games are so impressive that uh, you know, I mean, Twitch is obviously evidence of this, but uh, spectating somebody else playing a game is <laughs> is very very enjoyable in many cases these days with the the quality of game experiences that we have. Yeah, definitely. It'll it'll be fun to get back into this. Like I actually I say that my wife dragged me into this game, but I had a lot of fun playing this game for a pretty solid 3 years. And mm. just, you know, the way that work happened, I sort of fell off of the what did I fall off of? I fall off the train, the boat. I I don't I don't remember my metaphor, whatever. But uh maybe I'll get back in on that. What, what cool. about you, Alex? Uh, what are you playing? Well, actually, um, normally uh, when we do conspicuous consumption, I'm the one who says I'm not playing any games, but I'm listening to this weird, weird eclectic piece of music. Um, <laughs> this this week, uh, I am actually playing a game. Shock. Ooh. I'm actually playing a game. Uh, yeah, I'm actually a bit late to the party, but I'm playing Death Stranding. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Have you played that? I played a little bit of it, and I, I honestly kind of stopped and was content to watch other people talk about it, especially in the context of uh, the beginning of the pandemic in 2020 and 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 Hideo Kojima being this sort of uh, prescient, prophetic game designer. <laughs> it was kind of fun <laughs> that. Uh, but it's, yeah. it's a very interesting game. Um it, it was definitely fun to to play a little bit of it as well as to watch everyone just go crazy about it too yeah it is a very interesting game it's very um uh a, a bit of an embarrassing admission here but it's actually my first kojima game oh. i've not played yeah i've not played any of his previous uh uh iconic titles um uh, so i don't really know whether death stranding is a is a good representation of his style uh, but um, yeah, very, very, very. I mean, what what can you say? I mean, it's e extremely impressive. Um, the specifically about the sound, the very, very imaginative sound design work. Like mm -hmm. many, the the UI sounds and much of the um, equipment sounds, uh, and of course the environmental sounds. Um, uh, a lot of them are a little bit, sort of, slightly askew from what you might first expect and that it's quite brilliant you know it's mm -hmm. quite it's really nice and fresh to sort of have a, a very very different approach to doing ui sounds or doing uh, um uh, equipment sounds was like oh wow that they made it sound like that that's interesting I, I wouldn't have expected it if if it was me doing this i wouldn't have done it like that and those kinds of little surprises as you go through really really help to set this this world as uh, a very unique and interesting place to play in. So, um, yeah, and it's nice, you know, I mean, let's, I mean, I, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm uh, coming from my background. I mean, I'm pretty, 
pretty old, I suppose. And, and you know, and sometimes when you play these games that are this big kind of AAA titles like this and you just you just have to sit back and realize like, man, we're, we're so lucky these days. These games are just absolutely incredible. Like the value <laughs> for money, so much content in, in these kinds of, this level of game, this tier of like AAA games. It's like, man, there's just so much to enjoy here. This is this is fantastic. Um, so yeah, having a good time. I mean, the, the game itself, uh, I'm not, not enjoying it hugely, uh, but then I don't know that enjoying it is really the point. <laughs> I think that uh, kind of exploring the story and the narrative and, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, those aspects are front and center here as opposed to like really pleasurable uh, gameplay. Um, this is an interesting game in that, uh, yeah, it starts off very, very sort of tedious and gradually gets easier and easier, which is an interesting approach. In, in many cases, games will start off very, very easy and then, you know, get more and more difficult. Uh, and then sometimes with that, you you, you hit grind and, and issues like that. Uh, in this case, yeah. it's, you know, the first the first hour of Death Stranding is a little bit of a not a struggle, but you know, it's like it's not all fireworks and pyrotechnics. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Yeah. So, but yeah. Anyway, fantastic game. Highly recommended. If you've not played, uh, if you've not played it, then give it a try. And I think actually, uh, at least when I got it a few weeks ago, was it a week ago? It was actually on sale on the Epic Store ah. for forty for forty percent off. So I don't know if it's still on sale, but. Yeah, if even if it's not, I mean, the value for money is just incredible. So give it a go. Excellent sound. Mm-hmm, yeah, the composer for Death Stranding has been doing some interesting stuff lately. Uh, mm. You know, besides video games, I want to say he's been doing some film stuff. And all right, um, did he do the the soundtrack for Bell, which is? the Mamoru Hosoda film that came out uh, a couple years back. I think he did. I don't know. Yes, he did. Okay. Yeah, he he did do music for that, which was a really... I actually was rather impressed with that particular film soundtrack. I, I rather liked so, it. Um, his name is Lud- Ludwig Forsell. Yes, Ludwig Forsell. Yeah. And so he's been doing some very cool stuff, but he's also known for... Doing stuff with Kojima, so Death Stranding, right. Metal Gear Solid Five. Before that, uh, I think he might be working on the next one with Kojima. I, I think, but but who knows what that game is going to be? Uh, maybe we'll hear about that game in the future. It's probably not going to be at E three because E three is canceled. Ha <laughs> ha. Right. <laughs> Indeed. Oh well, we didn't we didn't need that anymore. Uh, Besides, it's not like I need another event in SoCal to talk about with uh, Alex on the call and, and make him feel jealous. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, well, anyways, uh, this was a great chat. And thank you for joining us for episode 241 of the Game Audio Hour. If you liked what you heard, feel free to support us by subscribing to us at your podcast purveyor of choice and leaving us a review to keep us in the forefront of the algorithm. You can also follow us on Twitter at Game Audio Hour, where we post notices about future episodes as well as try to support some other fun and positive voices out there in the Twitterverse. 
And of course, the easy way to do all of this without having to remember any of what I just said is to go to GameAudioHour.com. So go ahead and do that while I debate going back to NAMM. I mean, it's only 20 minutes away. I just have to pay 50 bucks for parking. Uh, I don't know. Do it, know. Vince. Should I? Do it, Vince. Yeah, do uh, it. NAMM. Uh, do it for me. Yeah. Do it for me. Okay, I'll do it. Hey, if I actually go back to NAMM, what, what should I check out? Um, oh, yeah. There's a, a new funky keyboard called the Expressive E, I think, which is where you, you, oh. you hold down a key and, and you can kind of like um, uh, move it side to side for vibrato or something like that. So check that out. Okay, yeah. All right. Yeah, maybe I will go back later today. Um, but maybe I'll... Maybe I'll do a ride share instead of parking my car over there.